Chapter Three, Part Two of the Seven Lamps of Architecture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Todd Albrick. The Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin. Chapter Three: The Lamp of Power, Part Two. Eleven. Thus far, then, of general forms and of the modes in which the scale of architecture is best to be exhibited. Let us next consider the manifestations of power which belong to its details and lesser divisions. The first division we have to regard is the inevitable one of masonry. It is true that this division may, by great art, be concealed, but I think it unwise as well as dishonest to do so, for this reason that there is a very noble character always to be obtained by the opposition of large stones to divided masonry, as by shafts and columns of one piece, or massy lintels and architraves, to wall-work of bricks or smaller stones. And there is a certain organization in the management of such parts, like that of the continuous bones of the skeleton, opposed to the vertebrae, which it is not well to surrender, I hold, therefore, that for this and other reasons, the masonry of a building is to be shown, and also that, with certain rare exceptions, as in the cases of chapels and shrines of most finished workmanship, the smaller the building, the more necessary it is that its masonry should be bold, and vice versa. For if a building be under the mark of average magnitude, it is not in our power to increase its apparent size, too easily measurable, by any proportionate diminution in the scale of its masonry. But it may be often in our power to give it a certain nobility by building it of massy stones, or at all events introducing such into its make. Thus it is impossible that there should ever be majesty in a cottage built of brick, but there is a marked element of sublimity in the rude and irregular piling of the rocky walls of the mountain cottages of Wales, Cumberland, and Scotland. Their size is not one whit diminished, though four or five stones reach at their angles from the ground to the eaves, or though a native rock happen to project conveniently and to be built into the framework of the wall. On the other hand, after a building has once reached the mark of majestic size, it matters indeed comparatively little whether its masonry be large or small, but if it be altogether large, it will sometimes diminish the magnitude for want of a measure. If altogether small, it will suggest ideas of poverty in material, or deficiency in mechanical resource, besides interfering in many cases with the lines of the design, and delicacy of the workmanship. A very unhappy instance of such interference exists in the façade of the church of Sainte Madeleine at Paris, where the columns being built of very small stones of nearly equal size with visible joints look as if they were covered with a close trellis. So then that masonry will be generally the most magnificent, which, without the use of materials systematically small or large, accommodates itself naturally and frankly to the conditions and structure of its work, and displays alike its power of dealing with the vastest masses, and of accomplishing its purpose with the smallest 
sometimes heaping rock upon rock with titanic commandment and anon binding the dusty remnants and edgy splinters into springing vaults and swelling domes and if the nobility of this confessed and natural masonry were more commonly felt we should not lose the dignity of it by smoothing surfaces and fitting joints the sums which we waste in chiselling and polishing stones which would have been better left as they came from the quarry would often raise a building a story higher only in this there is to be a certain respect for material also for if we build in marble or in any limestone the known ease of the workmanship will make its absence seem slovenly it will be well to take advantage of the stone softness and to make the design delicate and dependent upon smoothness of chiselled surfaces but if we build in granite or lava it is a folly in most cases to cast away the labour necessary to smooth it it is better to make the design granitic itself and to leave the blocks rudely squared i do not deny a certain splendour and sense of power in the smoothing of granite and in the entire subduing of its iron resistance to the human supremacy but in most cases i believe the labour and time necessary to do this would be better spent in another way and that to raise a building to a height of a hundred feet with rough blocks is better than to raise it to seventy with smooth ones and there is also a magnificence in the natural cleavage of the stone to which the art must indeed be great that pretends to be equivalent and a stern expression of brotherhood with the mountain heart from which it has been rent ill exchanged for a glistering obedience to the rule and measure of men his eye must be delicate indeed who would desire to see the pity palace polished twelve next to those of masonry we have to consider the divisions of the design itself those divisions are necessarily either into masses of light and shade or else by traced lines which latter must be indeed themselves produced by incisions or projections which in some lights cast a certain breadth of shade but which may nevertheless if finely cut be always true lines in distant effect i call for instance such panelling as that of henry the seventh chapel pure linear division now it does not seem to me sufficiently recollected that a wall surface is to an architect simply what a white canvas is to a painter with this only difference that the wall has already a sublimity in its height substance and other characters already considered on which it is more dangerous to break than to touch with shade the canvas surface and for my own part i think a smooth broad freshly laid surface of gesso a fairer thing than most pictures i see painted on it much more a noble surface of stone than most architectural features which it is caused to assume but however this may be the canvas and wall are supposed to be given and it is our craft to divide them and the principles on which this division is to be made are as regards relation of quantities the same in architecture as in painting or indeed in any other art whatsoever only the painter is by his varied subject partly permitted partly compelled to dispense with the symmetry of architectural light and shade and to adopt arrangements apparently free and accidental 
so that in modes of grouping there is much difference, although no opposition, between the two arts. But in rules of quantity both are alike, so far forth as their commands of means are alike. For the architect, not being able to secure always the same depth or decision of shadow, nor to add to its sadness by colour, because even when colour is employed it cannot follow the moving shade, is compelled to make many allowances and avail himself of many contrivances which the painter needs neither consider nor employ. 13. Of these limitations the first consequence is that the positive shade is a more necessary and more sublime thing in an architect's hands than in a painter's. For the latter, being able to temper his light with an undertone throughout, and to make it delightful with sweet colour, or awful with lurid colour, and to represent distance and air and sun by the depth of it, and fill its whole space with expression, can deal with an enormous, nay, almost with a universal extent of it, and the best painter's most delight in such extent. But as light, with the architect, is nearly always liable to become full and untempered sunshine seen upon solid surface, his only rests, and his chief means of sublimity, are definite shades. So that after size and weight, the power of architecture may be said to depend on the quantity, whether measured in space or intenseness, of its shadow. And it seems to me that the reality of its works, and the use and influence they have in the daily life of men, as opposed to those works of art with which we have nothing to do but in times of rest or of pleasure, require of it that it should express a kind of human sympathy, by a measure of darkness as great as there is in human life and that as the great poem and great fiction generally affect us most by the majesty of their masses of shade, and cannot take hold upon us if they affect a continuance of lyric sprightliness, but must be serious often and sometimes melancholy, else they do not express the truth of this wild world of ours, so there must be in this magnificently human art of architecture some equivalent expression for the trouble and wrath of life, for its sorrow and its mystery, and this it can only give by depth or diffusion of gloom, by the frown upon its front and the shadow of its recess. So that Rembrandtism is a noble manner in architecture, though a false one in painting, and I do not believe that ever any building was truly great unless it had mighty masses, vigorous and deep, of shadow mingled with its surface. And among the first habits that a young architect should learn is that of thinking in shadow, not looking at a design in its miserable liney skeleton, but conceiving it as it will be when the dawn lights it and the dusk leaves it, when its stones will be hot and its crannies cool, when the lizards will bask on the one and the birds build in the other. Let him design with the sense of cold and heat upon him. Let him cut out the shadows as men dig wells in unwatered plains, and lead along the lights as a founder does his hot metal. Let him keep the full command of both, and see that he knows how they fall, 
and where they fade. His paper lines of proportions are of no value. All that he has to do must be done by spaces of light and darkness, and his business is to see that the one is broad and bold enough not to be swallowed up by twilight, and the other deep enough not to be dried like a shallow pool by a noonday sun. And that this may be, the first necessity is that the quantities of shade or light, whatever they may be, shall be thrown into masses, either of something like equal weight, or else large masses of the one relieve with small of the other. But masses of one or other kind there must be. No design that is divided at all and is not divided into masses can ever be of the smallest value. This great law respecting breadth, precisely the same in architecture and painting, is so important that the examination of its two principal applications will include most of the conditions of majestic design on which I would at present insist. 14. Painters are in the habit of speaking loosely of masses of light and shade, meaning thereby any large spaces of either. Nevertheless, it is convenient sometimes to restrict the term mass to the portions to which proper form belongs, and to call the field on which such forms are traced interval. Thus, in foliage, with projecting boughs and stems, we have masses of light with intervals of shade, and in light skies, with dark clouds upon them, masses of shade with intervals of light. The distinction is in architecture still more necessary, for there are two marked styles dependent upon it, one in which the forms are drawn with light upon darkness, as in Greek sculpture and pillars, the other in which they are drawn with darkness upon light, as in early Gothic foliation. Now it is not in the designer's power determinately to vary degrees and places of darkness, but it is altogether in his power to vary in determined directions his degrees of light. Hence, the use of the dark mass characterizes, generally, a trenchant style of design in which the darks and lights are both flat and terminated by sharp edges, while the use of the light mass is in the same way associated with a softened and full manner of design in which the darks are much warmed by reflected lights and the lights are rounded and melt into them. The term applied by Milton to Doric bas-relief, bossy, is, as is generally the case with Milton's epithets, the most comprehensive and expressive of this manner which the English language contains while the term which specifically describes the chief member of early Gothic decoration, foy, foil, or leaf, is equally significative of a flat space of shade. 15. We shall shortly consider the actual modes in which these two kinds of mass have been treated, and first of the light or rounded mass. The modes in which relief was secured for the more projecting forms of bas-relief by the Greeks have been too well described by Mr. Eastlake. Footnote. Literature of the Fine Arts. Essay on bas-relief. End of footnote. To need recapitulation. The conclusion which forces itself upon us from the facts he has remarked 
being one on which I shall have occasion farther to insist presently, that the Greek workman cared for shadow only as a dark field, where from his light figure or design might be intelligibly detached. His attention was concentrated on the one aim at readableness and clearness of accent, and all composition, all harmony, nay, the very vitality and energy of separate groups, were, when necessary, sacrificed to plain speaking. Nor was there any predilection for one kind of form rather than another. Bounded forms were, in the columns and principal decorative members, adopted not for their own sake, but as characteristic of the things represented. They were beautifully rounded, because the Greek habitually did well what he had to do, not because he loved roundness more than squareness. Severely rectilineal forms were associated with the curved ones in the cornice and triglyph, and the mass of the pillar was divided by a fluting, which in distant effect destroyed much of its breadth. What power of light these primal arrangements left was diminished in successive refinements and additions of ornament, and continued to diminish through Roman work, until the confirmation of the circular arch as a decorative feature. Its lovely and simple line taught the eye to ask for a similar boundary of solid form. The dome followed, and necessarily the decorative masses were thenceforward managed with reference to, and in sympathy with, the chief feature of the building. Hence arose among the Byzantine architects a system of ornament entirely restrained within the superfices of curvilinear masses, on which the light fell with as unbroken gradation as on a dome or column, while the illumined surface was nevertheless cut into details of singular and most ingenious intricacy. Something is, of course, to be allowed for the less dexterity of the workmen, it being easier to cut down into a solid block than to arrange the projecting portions of leaf on the Greek capital. Such leafy capitals are nevertheless executed by the Byzantines with skill enough to show that their preference of the massive form was by no means compulsory, nor can I think it unwise. On the contrary, while the arrangements of line are far more artful in the Greek capital, the Byzantine light and shade are as incontestably more grand and masculine based on that quality of pure gradation which nearly all natural objects possess, and the attainment of which is, in fact, the first and most palpable purpose in natural arrangements of grand form. The rolling heap of the thundercloud, divided by rents and multiplied by wreaths, yet gathering them all into its broad, torrid, and towering zone, and its midnight darkness opposite, the scarcely less majestic heave of the mountainside, all torn and traversed by depth of defile and ridge of rock, yet never losing the unity of its illumined swell and shadowy decline, and the head of every mighty tree, rich with tracery of leaf and bough, yet terminated against the sky by a true line, and rounded by a green horizon, which, multiplied in the distant forest, makes it look bossy from above. All these mark for a great and honoured law that diffusion of light for which the Byzantine ornaments were designed, and show us 
that those builders had truer sympathy with what god made majestic than the self-contemplating and self-contented greek i know that they are barbaric in comparison but there is a power in their barbarism of sterner tone a power not sophistic nor penetrative but embracing and mysterious a power faithful more than thoughtful which conceived and felt more than it created a power that neither comprehended nor ruled itself but worked and wandered as it listed like mountain streams and winds and which could not rest in the expression or seizure of finite form it could not bury itself in acanthus leaves its imagery was taken from the shadows of the storms and hills and had fellowship with the night and day of the earth itself sixteen i have endeavoured to give some idea of one of the hollow balls of stone which surrounded by flowing leafage occur in varied succession on the architrave of the central gate of st mark's at venice in plate one figure two it seems to me singularly beautiful in its unity of lightness and delicacy of detail with breadth of light it looks as if its leaves had been sensitive and had risen and shut themselves into a bud at some sudden touch and would presently fall back again into their wild flow the cornices of saint michele of lucca seen above and below the arch in plate six show the effect of heavy leafage and thick stems arranged on a surface whose curve is a simple quadrant the light dying from off them as it turns it would be difficult as i think to invent anything more noble and i insist on the broad character of their arrangement the more earnestly because afterwards modified by greater skill in its management it became characteristic of the richest pieces of gothic design the capital given in plate five is of the noblest period of the venetian gothic and it is interesting to see the play of leafage so luxuriant absolutely subordinated to the breadth of two masses of light and shade what is done by the venetian architect with a power as irresistible as that of the waves of his surrounding sea is done by the masters of the cisalpine gothic more timidly and with a manner somewhat cramped and cold but not less expressing their assent to the same great law the ice spiculae of the north and its broken sunshine seem to have image in and influence on the work and the leaves which under the italian's hand roll and flow and bow down over their black shadows as in the weariness of noonday heat are in the north crisped and frost-bitten wrinkled at the edges and sparkling as if with dew but the rounding of the ruling form is not less sought and felt in the lower part of plate one is the finial of the pediment given in plate two from the cathedral of san lo it is exactly similar in feeling to the byzantine capital being rounded under the abacus by four branches of thistle leaves whose stems springing from the angles bend outwards and fall back to the head throwing their jaggy spines down upon the full light forming two sharp quatrefoils i could not get near enough to this finial to see with what degree of delicacy the spines were cut but i have sketched a natural group of thistle leaves beside it that the reader may compare the type 
and see with what mastery they are subjected to the broad form of the whole. The small capital from Coutance, plate 13, figure 4, which is of earlier date, is of simpler elements, and exhibits the principle still more clearly. But the Saint-Lofinial is only one of a thousand instances which might be gathered even from the fully developed flamboyant, the feeling of breadth being retained in minor ornaments long after it had been lost in the main design, and sometimes capriciously renewing itself throughout, as in the cylindrical niches and pedestals which enrich the porches of Caudebec and Rouen. Figure 1, plate 1, is the simplest of those at Rouen. In the more elaborate there are four projecting sides, divided by buttresses into eight rounded compartments of tracery. Even the whole bulk of the outer pier is treated with the same feeling, and though composed partly of concave recesses, partly of square shafts, partly of statues and tabernacle work, arranges itself as a whole into one richly rounded tower. 17. I cannot here enter into the curious questions connected with the management of larger curved surfaces, into the causes of the difference in proportion necessary to be observed between round and square towers, nor into the reasons why a column or ball may be richly ornamented, while surface decorations would be inexpedient on masses like the castle of San Angelo, the tomb of Cecilia Metella, or the dome of St. Peter's. But what has been above said of the desirableness of serenity in plain surfaces applies still more forcibly to those which are curved. And it is to be remembered that we are, at present, considering how the serenity and power may be carried into minor divisions, not how the ornamental character of the lower form may, upon occasion, be permitted to fret the calmness of the higher, nor though the instances we have examined are of globular or cylindrical masses chiefly, is it to be thought that breadth can only be secured by such alone. Many of the noblest forms are of subdued curvature, sometimes hardly visible, but curvature of some degree there must be in order to secure any measure of grandeur in a small mass of light. One of the most marked distinctions between one artist and another, in the point of skill, will be found in their relative delicacy of perception of rounded surface. The full power of expressing the perspective, foreshortening and various undulation of such surface is, perhaps, the last and most difficult attainment of the hand and eye. For instance, there is perhaps no tree which has baffled the landscape painter more than the common black spruce fir. It is rare that we see any representation of it other than caricature. It is conceived as if it grew in one plane, or as a section of a tree, with a set of boughs symmetrically dependent on opposite sides. It is thought formal, unmanageable, and ugly. It would be so if it grew as it was drawn. But the power of the tree is not in that chandelier-like section. It is in the dark, flat, solid tables of leafage, which it holds out on its strong arms, curved slightly over them like shields, and spreading towards the extremity like a hand. It is vain to endeavour to paint the sharp, grassy, intricate leafage, until this ruling form has been secured. 
and in the bows that approach the spectator the foreshortening of it is like that of a wide hill country ridge just rising over ridge in successive distances and the finger-like extremities foreshortened to absolute bluntness require a delicacy in the rendering of them like that of the drawing of the hand of the magdalen upon the vase in mr rogers titian get but the back of that foliage and you have the tree but i cannot name the artist who has thoroughly felt it so in all drawing and sculpture it is the power of rounding softly and perfectly every inferior mass which preserves the serenity as it follows the truth of nature and which demands the highest knowledge and skill from the workman a noble design may always be told by the back of a single leaf and it was the sacrifice of this breadth and refinement of surface for sharp edges and extravagant undercutting which destroyed the gothic mouldings as the substitution of the line for the light destroyed the gothic tracery this change however we shall better comprehend after we have glanced at the chief conditions of arrangement of the second kind of mass that which is flat and of shadow only end of chapter three part two recording by todd albrick